you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. According to a SAGE study, LGBT people are more likely than straight people to live alone, not have children, and be single when we're older. And while that might be fun during our young years, that can be a problem during our senior years when we don't have the support that we might need to help us survive. That's why we're hosting Ryan Taylor from Mass Mutual on our show to talk about long-term care insurance and how it might be able to serve LGBT people, especially during our senior years. We want to thank Mass Mutual for their sponsorship and their support of the LGBT community. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money Part Duh. (laughs) (laughs) You would think that with our entire business being reliant on technology, we would have better technology, but even the debt-free guys make mistakes sometimes. We've got to update our software. So we've had to ask Ryan Taylor from Mass Mutual to come back for a second time so we can talk about his expertise in yeah, <laughs> long-term care insurance. And actually, Ryan is with LGBT Financial that custodies with Mass Mutual. Oh, so yes. we've got to give a shout out to Ryan and his company. Absolutely. <laughs> so since we keep screwing up, Ryan, how about you introduce yourselves? <laughs> Please. All righty. Hey, thanks for having me on again. It's great to talk to you guys anyway, so it's not a hardship. (laughs) Thank you. Likewise. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I I am the owner at LGBT Financial. We're based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, and we operate primarily in the Western United States, but also some Eastern states. And and kind of our goal is just to be a, a resource for the LGBT community so they can do their financial planning in a place where they feel comfortable and, and safe and and ideally, we're in the future, we're no longer a necessity and we're just a preferred resource. But, but for now, we, we fulfill that necessity space. Awesome. It's, it's a very important space right now. How long have you been around? LGBT Financial, we officially founded in February of 2016, so just over a year and a half ago. Very so, cool. Nice. And how long have you been in the industry? I've been in the financial services industry as in my current capacity for about two and a half years. And then prior to that, I actually taught business and finance classes in Peru oh, wow. as a part of an economic entrepreneurship program. Oh, very cool. That's intriguing. We should have you come back and talk about that sometime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just one thing I, I wanted to call out that you are based in Salt Lake City, Utah. So... <laughs> Not necessarily where a lot of people would think is the bastion of LGBT acceptance, but I think you've said before that Salt Lake City is a little bit of a different different city compared to the rest of the state, right? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny. Often when people talk about Utah, they refer to it as a bubble and it's kind of it's largely associated with the LDS church. Utah kind of is a bubble. It's very unique. It's very different than a lot of other states in a lot of ways. Salt Lake is kind of a bubble inside of that bubble. Um, very, very liberal, very diverse. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to meet people and to grow. It's not a game mecca like New York or San Francisco, but it's certainly a maybe an oasis, I would say. And we have we have a very high percentage gay population. Yeah. Per cap. John and I wrote an article called Five Affordable LGBT Cities You Might Be Forgetting About, and we highlighted Salt Lake because of the fact that not only is it lower average cost of living compared to many other capital cities or large cities across the country, but it also has one of the higher 
per capita LGBT population, which, like you said, that may make it a little bit of a oasis for people in the boundary states or even within Utah as a place to go to when they want to feel a little bit more comfortable and accepted for who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And one reason I like it quite a lot is it's very, very clean. Even the suburbs of Salt Lake are, are very clean. It's, I mean, aside from the, we kind of get some bad pollution, but other than that, I couldn't think of many better places to live. I'd love to move to Denver where <laughs> you guys are, but uh, but I am where I am. And <laughs> Well, you're welcome here anytime. And David and I need to make a trip out to Salt Lake City yeah. sometime. We've been saying that for years. We need to get off our butts and get out there. Yeah, exactly. To give one more plug to Ryan, HSBC did a study a couple of years ago that showed that people who have a financial advisor or a financial planner tend to have on average 29% more in retirement income than those who don't. We know from a recent mass mutual study that LGBT people aren't nearly as prepared as our straight peers when it comes to financial planning and, and retirement, and they don't know where to go or who to turn to. Maybe a good resource for you is Ryan Taylor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's why we have Ryan on. Actually, Ryan, why, why have you decided to focus on the LGBT community? You know, that's a good question. At first, it was a little bit scary. In all honesty, at first, it just seemed like a natural fit. I'm, when I moved to Salt Lake City, I'm originally from eastern Idaho, a small town in eastern Idaho. So when I moved to Salt Lake, I didn't really know anybody except for a little bit of a personal note, primarily people who I chatted with on dating apps. So <laughs> <laughs> um, that was kind of a natural start for me in, in starting my financial practice. And then I decided, you know, here in Salt Lake City, I kind of thought, hey, there's a lot of people here who aren't getting the help they need, or maybe they're getting the help, but they don't necessarily get the help from somebody who can empathize with them. And so I started from there as I expanded and I started meeting people at pride festivals in Utah, around Utah and other states as well here in the West United States. I noticed that problem was not unique to Salt Lake City. And in fact, a lot of my clients who have been with their spouse or partner for many years have since left their individual financial advisors who they didn't feel comfortable going together with. And they've, they've come over to LGBT financial just because they wanted to be able to do their planning together in a comfortable place. So that's kind of where it started. It's evolved a lot from there, but that's kind of our foundation. Like I said at the beginning, our, our goal is to not just be the place where people can go because it's a necessary thing, but because we're, we're also the preferred place for them to go. Exactly. That's awesome. And I love that you mentioned the empathy there because studies consistently show that LGBT people don't reach out to financial services firms or don't look for a financial planner, typically because they don't feel they'll be able to find a financial planner who either understands them or their family. Mm -hmm. And obviously, LGBT financial and Ryan can certainly understand your family. Exactly. Yeah, I just want to highlight one of the statistics that John and I have been talking about recently is the disposable income or buying power of the LGBT community that we have in a recent study, 971 billion, that's with a B, billions of dollars worth, and that's just in the United States, worth of spending power. But at the same time, most of us don't feel prepared for the future. I think that's partly because there are so many financial services firms that do not take the time to listen to and engage with their LGBT clients. And they're missing out on that multi-billion dollar opportunity to help us be better prepared for the future. And I think that that's 
the reason why you're saying this, Ryan, is that you're seeing that and you're actually engaging with your clients and recognizing that they're getting the kinds of services that they need because of that. Yeah, and in fact, that's part of the inspiration of creating LGBT Financial. That fact with the amount of quote-unquote pink money that's available is is kind of a dual-edged sword. While that is available and for financial advisors to help people with, a lot of these individuals who maybe have been a little bit weary of approaching a financial advisor because I don't know whether that person will be comfortable with them, etc., now they're worried that that person is just pretending to be comfortable with them so that they can get that money, right? Mm -hmm, right. A little bit of a dual-edged sword. So kind of the whole idea behind becoming official as LGBT financial is just to kind of have our own coming out. We're out and we're proud and we're not pretending. We're here for the LGBT community. And that's our primary purpose is to help the people. Helping them with their money is secondary. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Well, let's get to the topic at hand. One of the things that we noticed in this recent study by Mass Mutual is that a larger percentage of LGBT people say that they would rather spend today than be prepared for the future, which is interesting. That's a scary thought. I think it was 36% of us say that, which makes us wonder, what should we really be thinking about? How should we be preparing for the future? And that's why we've had Ryan come on the show, because he has a certain area of expertise that we'd like for him to talk a little bit more about. Exactly. We have Ryan came on to talk about now for the second time, long-term care insurance <laughs> and what that is. Ryan, do you mind explaining long-term care insurances and, and how one would go about getting it? Absolutely. When I think of long-term care insurance, I typically think of what happens at the end of people's lives. So, And it's not exclusive to that. People can have a long-term care incident at the age of 35 and live until they're 90, but that's quite uncommon. Typically, long-term care happens when people are old, right? They're aged, their bodies start decaying, and that's a natural part of life, and they typically require some sort of in-home care or, or care in a skilled nursing facility. And that long-term care is very expensive. And it goes up a lot every year. In fact, it doesn't just outpace inflation. It, it some years doubles or triples the rate of inflation. Wow. So that, that cost of care is quite expensive and not getting any cheaper. That's um, quite eye-opening. <laughs> yeah. As underprepared as our community tends to be with retirement, at least what we say in, in various studies, it seems like it would make sense for us to maybe start considering getting long-term care insurance to help negate some of those later costs. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the statistic that came from Mass Mutual study where LGBT workers are much more likely to prioritize spending now and enjoying life over saving for the future. It kind of gives us pause for thought, how does that position us for things like long-term care, right? If we're not right. saving for the future. And in addition to that, while adoption rates among LGBT couples are on the rise, the overall percentage of same-sex couples raising children is declining. When we kind of couple those together, we have less money for the future, and we also have fewer children to help take care of us in the future. How are we going to take care of that? the natural place for us to go for that money first is our retirement income. In fact, long-term care is second only to taxes in, in terms of wealth erosion factors in retirement. Yeah. That's interesting. Say I'm a gay man in a gay relationship and I'm saving a little bit here and there for retirement. 
at what age might I want to start considering possibly purchasing long-term care insurance? Good question. When I am doing financial planning for people, I kind of approach this from two different angles. Most people won't require long-term care until they're into their retirement years, right? So when you approach from that angle, you think, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to be wasting the opportunity of my dollars on long-term care insurance. I'd rather be setting that aside for retirement, right? So I can have a robust retirement. So you don't want to start doing it too early, but you also don't want to wait too late because the longer you wait, the more likely it is that you'll be uninsurable for long-term care insurance. So generally speaking, the guideline that I like to use is between age 45 and 55 is a good kind of spread to really be looking at that. For some people, they can do that sooner. Of course, you'll never end up paying more for it by doing it sooner. The cost of that insurance does go up on an exponential curve every year. So getting at age 35 and not using it until age 65, you'll end up spending less over that long period than you would if you started paying for it at age 55 and didn't use it until age 65. So just as soon as people are able to, it's a good thing to just add to their portfolio for lack of a, of a better term, I guess, just because the sooner you get it, the less it'll cost and the more likely you're going to be insurable. Sure. And so does it work similar to life insurance where my rate will also be lower if I'm generally healthy and I don't smoke and all that? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And in fact, it's far more people are declined for long-term care insurance than for life insurance. That's a statistic that, of course, there's term life insurance. Most people don't use their term life insurance. If you have permanent insurance, of course, you're going to use it, but hopefully you've got a long time before you use it. Long-term care, is it's an interesting thing. The lifetime probability, this is actually from an AARP study that happened back in 2003. So this is actually a little bit old and more people are using long-term care now than they were then. But back then, the lifetime probability of becoming disabled in at least two activities of daily living, which would qualify you for long-term care coverage, is 68% of people over age 65. So that's a, that's a huge number of people, especially yeah. now the baby boomers retiring, long-term care claims are skyrocketing. Can you explain that a little bit more again, that idea of the kinds of services or features that are offered in long-term care insurance? Yeah. I'll kind of backtrack a little bit. There are what are called activities of daily living. Those are what trigger the benefits of long-term care. So those include things like being able to feed yourself or to transfer yourself or to use the bathroom on your own, to walk. It also can be triggered by things like cognitive impairments, things like dementia, Alzheimer's, and any of those things can trigger it. Now, long-term care can cover a number of different things that can cover in-home health care. So say you, you need to build a ramp and you need a wheelchair and things like that because you can no longer walk. Long-term care would cover something like that, assuming that you've gone long enough since the doctor has said, hey, this person needs assistance. There's something called an elimination period. So there's a waiting period, just like any other disability insurance policy or anything like that, where you have to wait a certain period of time before the benefits actually kick in. But once those do kick in, those will cover in-home health care. The nurse needs to come to your home. It will cover things like that. If you need to go to a nursing home, long-term care coverage will cover up to a certain dollar amount, depending on your insurance policy, to cover skilled nursing facilities, extended stay in a hospital. It's quite comprehensive. 
when we're thinking about long-term care insurance, this is really the kind of insurance when it really is that end-of-life care, when we are really needing the assistance. And as you mentioned before, that many of us in the LGBT community simply will not have family to turn to to offer assistance, much like many people do today. I know, for example, my grandmother, who passed away recently, relied heavily on our family and my aunts and uncles to take care of her in those, I think it was probably the last, I don't know, maybe six or eight years that, that she was needing assistance. And I can't imagine how much that would have cost if she was in a facility needing help from someone else that was having to be there 24 hours a day. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, the average cost of long-term care is around $6,000 a month. And the average claim for long-term care is between three and four years. So, and some people go on multiple claims in their lifetime. So it's very costly. And if you don't have somebody there who can do it for you, and in all honesty, for me, for example, whether I have kids or not, I'm not sure that I want them to have to do that, right? That's true. I don't want, I don't want their last memory of dad to be changing my diaper, mm, right? right? I would rather have a skilled nurse doing that and just have my kids come and visit and show me pictures of their kids, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, Right. So it can be the difference between going out with dignity or, or not. Right. If the average cost of long-term care is about $6,000, I think you said, right? Mm -hmm. What is the average waiting period until long-term care insurance kicks in after incidents has happened? Good question. Depending on the insurance company and, the, and how you've structured your policy, of course, the, the shorter the waiting period, the more you're going to pay in a monthly or, or annual premium. If you want it to kick in after 30 days, you're going to pay a premium for that. Generally, across the board from the insurance companies that I'm affiliated with, the longest that waiting period is is six months. So 180 days. Most people generally select between 60 and 90 days for that waiting period. That kind of puts them in line with their emergency savings plan, mm -hmm. um, who have planned for the future have between three and six months of emergency savings. Cover that and then kick in. All right. And that was my, that was my follow-up question is who's paying for those expenses when the long-term care insurance isn't? And that's coming out of the patient's pocket. Does the long-term care insurance reimburse you for that waiting period? So that's, again, it's going to depend on the insurance company. There are some who do. There are some who don't. There are some insurance companies who, for that waiting period, they require you to have long-term care help every day during that period. There are others who, where they only require that you have at least one day a week during that waiting period. So there are all different types of things. Generally, the more attractive the elimination period, the more you pay for it. Right. So it's really is you get what you pay for. <laughs> yep, yep. You either get a 1990 Honda Civic or you get a brand new Mercedes Benz. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then just so I'm clear, where does Medicare and Medicaid end and long-term care insurance begin? Or do they overlap at all? Very good question. There's actually a lot of debate about that and how it might potentially change. But generally speaking, if somebody's planned for long-term care, their long-term care coverage is where they go, right? After that long-term care benefit has expired, what will happen is called a Medicaid spend down. And that spend down requires people to spend down their assets to the point where they are then eligible for that care through Medicaid. Now, people who haven't planned for that that's their first route, right? They've saved for retirement. They have a long-term care incident. 
then then they start spending down their assets, right? So they start spending, they start paying for that out of pocket, out of their retirement plans. And then once those are depleted to a point where they're eligible for Medicaid, then Medicaid kicks in. Okay. Jeez. That's why you need a financial planner. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's all complicated. Yeah, it can be a little complicated, and, <laughs> but uh, it's not terribly misunderstandable. Right. Okay. So, is there a way that I can figure out whether I'm looking to purchase long-term care insurance in my 30s, 40s, or 50s? Are there general guidelines that give me sort of average costs of what I can expect to pay on a month-to-month basis for that oh. protection? I wish that I had run some illustrations for you. (laughs) And I think I did last time we had this call. I'll give you the example of my parents because I already have their permission to talk with with people about their situation. So they're in their 50s, very good health. They don't have any smoker ratings or anything like that. And for a standalone long-term care policy for them that pays them, they have just above the the average long-term care costs. So they have just over $6,000 a month. And they're paying combined with couples discounts a little bit less than $3,000 a year. So it's not terribly expensive. Standalone long-term care is your cheapest way to pay for it. But it's also, if you never use it, it's a sunk cost. Wow. And then as you were explaining that, I was, I'm wondering to so your parents are a straight couple. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, not, I guess yeah. not, obviously. That could be different. Anyway, I was wondering, are gay men... Do we have a higher premium to pay simply because we're gay men and the old stereotype that we're more inclined to get HIV or AIDS than every other population? You know, that's a very good question. I wish this were a little bit different. The lifestyle itself will not affect your premium payment. What will is when an insurance company checks your medical records. And if you have consistent use of Truvada, some companies do ding you on that. They typically won't give you a, a decline because you're using Truvada. In light of evidence, it's silly that they even look at that at all. Some companies say, you know what, they're taking Truvada. It's no increased risk. It doesn't matter. But generally speaking, sexuality, sexual preferences, those don't affect anything. Of course, gender does change things. That is a struggle we're kind of going through right now in terms of, of the inequity that that has surrounding the transgender community. And where there aren't really answers there yet, I think the insurance industry is trying to move more toward unisex ratings. Those will err on being higher premiums overall, but I think that will help a little bit. And you said earlier that more people are declined access to long-term care insurance than life insurance. Do you know what percentage of people actually qualify for long-term care insurance? Uh, So the last statistic that I was made aware of, and this was a couple years ago, so I'm sure it's changed a little bit with algorithmic underwriting and better field underwriting by advisors. Back then, about one in four people who applied got approved. I'm sure that's increased because they they do a better job at at vetting and, and making sure that advisors understand the underwriting requirements. But also, people generally tend to want to apply once they know they will need it. Right? Right. And once you know you'll need it, that's when you're not really insurable. Right. That whole insurance caveat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Call before, not after. Right. (laughs) So I'm going to throw out some. At that point, it's not really insurance, is it? It's (laughs) just care. It's (laughs) the need is there. It's not insuring something that might happen. It's already happened. So it's. Yep. So I'm going to throw out some big words here. If I can't qualify for, if I don't qualify for long term care insurance, 
Is an accelerated death benefit rider on my health insurance a good backup? On your life insurance? My life insurance, yeah. Yeah, it's, of course, maybe a undesirable stepchild, <laughs> but it's there. There are some companies that include that as an included thing in their life insurance. Other companies who don't include that, they usually do have it available as a, as a rider you can pay additional for. The terminal illness rider is designed to make the death benefit of the life insurance accessible to somebody when the doctor says, hey, you've got six months to live and you need care. Right. So that, that's what that's designed for. It's not designed to be a long term fix, unfortunately. Right. Mm -hmm. An accelerated death benefit rider is something that's provided when someone faces terminal illness and it can be added to their insurance. Is that rider, is that specific to whole life and not term? No, it's not actually. It's of course it's going to be company by company. Many companies that's available and and included on both term and permanent life insurance products. Yeah, and then one of the complaints that I've heard about long term care insurance is that it can be so convoluted in terms of when you actually get paid out. Like the stars have to be aligned right. You have to, and the <laughs> day has to start with an S. Is it still that complicated to actually get your reimbursement, or have they yeah, kind of yeah. made that easier? That's, you kind of hit a big point right on the nose, that can be a difficult thing. And it's because it's a reimbursement. So while you might have a long-term care policy that says you get $300 a day or $3,000 a month or whatever that is, they don't just pay that to you when you file the long-term care claim. It is always on a reimbursement schedule. So you have to send in receipts. And again, I'm going to refer back to getting an, an old used junky car versus a brand new nice car. The more you pay the less likely the insurance company is going to try to fight you. Of course, if something seems frivolous or doctored, they're going to investigate it. Right. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're going to vet every expense. They're an insurance company and, and their primary business is staying in business. Right. Exactly. Are there tax consequences if I do receive reimbursement? Is that considered income? Great question. So it's going to depend on, how, on what type of long-term care policy you have. In most cases, because it is considered a qualified healthcare expense, well, healthcare expenses are normally tax deductible, right? When you send in those receipts and it's reimbursed to you, it's just right across the board. It's it's an insurance benefit. There's no taxable consequence to that. Okay, that's good to know because I know taxes are very confusing for same-sex couples these days. We're try <laughs> still trying to figure out that <laughs> right. yep. whole landscape. I think I have one final question, and and that's. If I have long-term care insurance and I have a sudden death and never actually take advantage of it or use the long-term care insurance, is there any sort of cash payout? Great question. Again, this is going to go back to the insurance company and the specific long-term care insurance contract that you're looking at. Some do have a reimbursement of premium. Most don't come with a death benefit. And I'll give you a caveat here in a second because that can be different. Most long-term care policies out there, people haven't elected to pay more for the reimbursement of premium upon death, and there isn't just a standard death benefit on a long-term care policy. Okay. Um, now, Social Security is going to have some kind of death benefit associated with it, right? So people aren't just SOL if they don't plan. There would be things available to them, but really if somebody is thinking that they want to have a reimbursement of premium or a death benefit or something like that, 
and they also want to have long-term care insurance, they might want to look more closely at, at a hybrid type product where the insurance company makes the death benefit available to the insured as a long-term care benefit. There are a number of insurance companies who have moved to that hybrid type product. Yeah. I remember you talking about that last time on the show. Can you explain that hybrid product just a little bit more? Absolutely. When we think about long-term care, there are three ways to fund it. The first and the least costly in terms of premium payment is to simply fund it with your retirement dollars, right? To pay it out of pocket. If you never use long-term care, that's your most efficient option. Now, if you do use use long-term care, then that's your least efficient option. The second way is to get a standalone long-term care policy. In that situation, it's kind of just the inverse. Pay the premium. It's an inexpensive premium. But if you never use it, those dollars were just paying a security guard, right? right? You never need, never needed to use a security guard, but at least you had them and you had the peace of mind. The third way is, and this is actually fairly recent in the last 10 or 12 years, insurance companies found a way essentially to mitigate their risk and also to decrease the overall cost of long-term care insurance for the client, and that's to couple it with life insurance. So that's available depending on the company on either a whole life insurance product or a universal life insurance product. And in those situations, the premium payments are, of course, higher because you're getting a death benefit as well as access to long-term care. But essentially, it's made the long-term care insurance itself much cheaper because it's simply unlocking access to the death benefit, something that at the end of life you're going to use anyway and the insurance company is going to have to pay out. And it's going to give you access to that while you're still alive. So it's truly a living benefit, not just a terminal illness benefit where the doctor's giving you a couple months to live. This is something that if you have one of these hybrid policies in place and you have a long-term care incident when you're 65, but you end up living until age 90, you have access to that long-term care for the period that you need it according to your insurance contract. And then whatever's left over will pass to you as a death benefit when you die. Now, if you never use the long-term care, oh, well, it'll pass to you as a death benefit when you die. And and even if you need it in retirement, you can take that out as a cash value in retirement if, if that's what's what you need. A lot of flexibility inside of those types of policies. And they've been very, very popular, especially among single people in the LGBT community. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I could see that. Okay, so now I lied. I have two questions. Um, <laughs> the, the first is, rather than having all of our listeners call you or listen to this podcast a thousand times, which we would not object to, by the way, <laughs> is there a, a place where this is sort of broken down in layman's terms so I can feel a bit more educated if I go into talk to a planner? In terms of long-term care insurance? Yeah. I would say generally my answer for any question like that is Google. Um, Many insurance companies have great breakdowns of how they work. They don't get too into the weeds with it because they don't want to confuse people. But of course, MassMutual has some great information on their website on MassMutual.com. Lincoln Financial Group is another great company with regard to the hybrid policy that theirs is on a universal life contract. Any insurance company, they're going to want to sell it. And so they want you to feel like you understand it and like you need it, right? So those are good places to go. But in general, to all the do-it-yourselfers out there, I guess I would say face your pride and, and talk to a financial advisor that, that really understands how they work and can help you understand. And that's a perfect tee-up to my next question. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> go go. ahead. <laughs> well, where all can our listeners get more information about you, Ryan Taylor, and LGBT Financial? Great question. Probably where I would direct most people is just to our website. It's www.lgbtfinancial.org. 
anything else you need, whether you need to call us or you need to schedule an appointment or you're just looking for information, it's all accessible there on the website. And you're currently doing a survey right now. Is that how long is that still available for people to do? We'll probably keep it open for another, probably another three weeks so that it's open for a month. We, we've had it available for just a week. We've had some great, we've had great response. The survey is just to get an idea of what financial products and resources the LGBT and ally community have available to them, whether that's through work or wherever, and, and to get an idea of what type of planning people have done and what their concerns are. And that is also available if they go to lgbtfinancial.org on our homepage. There's links there if they want to be participate. It's a national survey. We love as much feedback as possible. The more, the more, the better. Right now, most of our feedback is out of Utah, because that's where most people know about us. We'd love to get more feedback from across the country, get a better overall perspective of what our community has available to them. It's great that you guys are doing that. So if you're a listener and you are interested in participating, please do so. The more information that Ryan and his team can get about our community, the better they are able to create products and services that truly meet our unique needs. Thanks, Ryan. You know, I'm just going to reiterate, go back to the quote, the statistic that John quoted at the very beginning. And you can see why individuals who work with a financial advisor have 29% more income in retirement than those who don't simply because of the wealth of knowledge that advisors have, as well as the simple fact that they're doing it all the time. This is their job. They do this every day. John and I have worked in financial services, but only a small portion of it. And so even topics like this, we love to have experts like Ryan come on and share this kind of information with all of us so that we can learn a little bit more. But I think what is most important, especially for those of us who are not fully immersed in it, is to reach out and talk to a financial advisor so that you are prepared and you don't go, I wish I would have done that back when I was. And so we encourage you to to keep considering the money conscious lifestyle that we encourage, but at the same time, reach out to a financial professional to get some help when you need it. We're really not scary, by the way. <laughs> no, no. We are scared to reach out, but we don't buy. Yeah, not at all. You know, we know several financial advisors and planners, and they're all very nice people. <laughs> we want to thank Ryan again for taking another hour out of his busy schedule to to come on our show. So we hope upon hope that this one recorded properly. We to <laughs> do it again, and we can have Ryan come back another time for another topic. But thank you very much, Ryan. We appreciate it. Absolutely. LGBT people have unique concerns relative to our straight counterparts when it comes to finances and long-term care. It's up to us to research and investigate what options are available to us, and we want to thank Ryan Taylor for coming on our show and explaining to us what long-term care insurance looks like. Please look into this service for yourself and consider if it's right for you. It may help you when you need it most. We want to remind you again that MassMutual sponsored this episode, and we want to thank MassMutual for supporting queer money and for supporting the queer community. Thank you. Okay. We just serviced you, now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) Would help me if I had a personal chef made all me all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The other end I like the butts, so
from Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.